Welcome to another episode of Across the Pond. Barry, how are you doing today? It's been a crazy Monday, Chad, so I am all over the place, but we're going to try and contain ourselves and be here for this podcast episode. Well, this one is taking place a lot later than usual, so if any silly stuff comes out of Barry's mouth today, <laughs> um, it's explained. He's two hours ahead. Um, I mean, what's the time there even? It's, it's nearly 10 o'clock at night. We're starting. Way past <laughs> my bedtime. Way past my bedtime. Let's hear that jingle, Chad. Let's do it. So again, we've got a yet another busy episode today. Um, obviously, we haven't even got into it, but um, looking at our, our show notes, um, a lot happened this last week. Uh, hopefully, we do it justice. Definitely. It's going to be a packed episode, lots of, lots of good stuff, um, but we can't leave any of this out. It's all too yep. important. So looking forward to, we'll, we'll dig through it as best we can and uh, stick with us for the journey. Absolutely. Let's go. The week that was. So the first story is there another pandemic around the world? Uh, obviously, China has had its uh, new coronavirus, um, basically of the same sort of family as the SARS virus uh, that, you know, obviously uh, did some really bad things a couple of years back. Um, it looks like it started at a fish market and, uh, as these things always do, jumps over from animal species to humans. Um, and, yeah, basically, the, the sort of main hook here is that it causes pneumonia. And this is obviously what is uh, raising all these red flags for, for potential deaths and, and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, basically, there's been, as we record this, um, a day or two ago, they've come up with a recent discovery that there is an incubation period of 1 to 14 days. Obviously, whenever there's a new virus, no one knows how it reacts uh, with the world that it's living in. And yeah, now we know that people can carry the virus before even showing any symptoms, um, which is certainly a concern. Um, and as we record, obviously, this number is moving at a rapid pace, um, but there's currently 3,000 cases um, and 81 people dead. Um, interestingly, though, no deaths outside China, um, but various uh, infections outside of China um, in terms of Thailand, the US, Oz. Um, there's obviously uh, it's a bit more widespread in, in some smaller numbers as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, essentially, we've seen Wuhan, uh, where this uh, virus has basically broken out um, on pretty much a lockdown now. Um, and uh, interestingly enough for me, um, in Shanghai, government has actually stopped businesses from returning to work until the 10th of February. A serious, serious uh, virus here, Barry. Yeah, definitely. It's one of those stories that is very, very scary. These kind of pandemics are one of the biggest threats to 21st century civilization by pure by, by the fact that our world is so globalized, people are so mobile, there's so many of us that these things, if they're not caught right at the beginning, can really spread very, very quickly. So obviously the whole of China and all of that area is on high alert and are trying their best to quarantine and try and keep it as small as possible. But we've seen with things like the Ebola virus and other pandemics in the past that these things get out of our control very quickly. And it takes a lot of resources, a lot of clever thinking, a lot of like strategic maneuvering to ensure that we can control this and try and find the best kind of uh, retaliation and the best kind of response we can to this virus. A uh, very scary story. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the, the two sort of interesting things at play here for me is how, you know, in the, in the first uh, beginning kind of week of this virus, um, a lot of the people of China are very sort of unsure about whether the government's telling the full truth. We obviously know what happened with the SARS virus. Um, so there's a bit of skepticism around that, but I, it looks like they've kind of, uh, you know, come clean with everything, not really withholding anything. And the second thing for me is that the World Health Organization 
obviously grappling with whether this is a you know sort of worldwide issue yet or just an issue unique to China. Yeah, the communication is so, so important with these kinds of things. And so the story needs to be set straight. Everyone needs to be singing from the same hymn book, et cetera, et cetera. And if there is any misinformation or fake news or misleading stuff out there, that's a real struggle. Because once this, once information gets contaminated and kind of gets confusing for citizens and you don't know how to act, you don't know if you should be going to work, if you should be staying at home, how to treat it, if, you, if they have some symptoms, et cetera. So it's very important that everyone's on the same page here. And I've seen quite promising um, stories in the in this regard i think that china as you say have, have been quite forthright and quite forthcoming with all the information um and we'll have to wait and see as to whether they can contain it in that area or if it's going to require international intervention to come in and try and make sure it doesn't go any wider than where it is at the moment well let's hope that doesn't happen i mean yeah really such a worrying one here like you said just how how quickly it spreads i mean if we look at four days ago i recall that number being at around 800 um and yeah now we are at 3000 how how quickly has that grown yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And it's because everyone's in such close proximity in these big cities, right? So everyone lives so close to each other that if it's contagious, and especially if the symptoms are hidden, that's a big key part here. The symptoms are hidden. So the guys who are carrying this virus or carrying this disease don't know it until it's yeah. too late. And they've already infected the people around them. And so I think this is a, a, a key transition point for our civilization when it looks at what is an existential risk for humanity. So we often talk about nuclear war, we talk about AI sometimes, we talk about climate change, etc. As a, as a threat to the whole humanity. And pandemics is one of those that is very, very serious and very threatening, but not as many people talk about it, because yep. it's not as sexy to talk about, it's not as in the media all the time. And it's only when these things happen, then all of a sudden the media changes its tune and becomes very important. What I'm very comforted by is there are people whose entire job is to prepare for these kind of situations. Yep. So the World Health Organization and all of its surrounding kind of paraphernalia, they are prepared for this and they've been planning for things like this and they have the best chance possible to try and contain it. But it's something we should definitely be thinking about as an existential threat to ourselves and ensure that if these things come along, we have the right resources in place and we know what's going on. Because if you, if you wait too long and you don't catch it early enough, it's too late. I mean, less on the important part is the timing of this. Um, you know, China's Lunar New Year now being extended by three days. Um, but, you know, certainly not a whole lot that could be done to, uh, to prolong that. Um, just really poor timing as well for everyone uh, in the country. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's just pure bad luck. And uh, I remember when I was I was in uh, Shanghai for Chinese New Year about four or five years ago, and it was such an amazing time of year. Like the festivities are incredible. The morale and the feeling in those cities is so so incredible. And to have something like this kind of dampen it a bit and put a, put a bit of a cork in that is, is really worrying and, and quite sad, to be honest. Well, let's hope that death rate can stabilize and uh, stay where it is. Hopefully the research and, uh, you know, the medical guys get involved in and, and get some real progress there so moving on to the next one uh, this last week was the world economic forum out in davos um, and essentially climate change being the key topic here we had the 16 year old climate change activist greta thunberg who for me really interestingly is there in a tracksuit um, and essentially um, telling the world's sort of biggest leaders that they're not doing enough yeah, it's she's she's a bit of a controversial figure in my view. Like yeah. I, I I don't quite know what to make of her. Um, obviously, she's had a huge splash in in the marketplace and really has kind of shone a big spotlight on climate change, which is amazing. I mean, she won she, not won. She was awarded Times Person of the Year, which is a huge huge um, accomplishment um, and whatnot. But there's a lot of controversy around her as to. 
um, this kind of brash, in-your-face kind of um, yeah. tackling this issue and whether that's the best way forward, number one. And second thing is, is it actually coming from her as a 16-year-old, right? Or is it coming from other people who are using her as a mouthpiece because she's now got some notoriety? Yeah. Um, and so I found it very interesting that she's at the World Economic Forum. Um, I, w I didn't expect that, to be honest. I didn't think that was the kind of spot she would be. Um, but obviously, she's made a splash, and so they want her voice there. And uh, the, more, the more attention we can have on climate change, the better. Um, the World Economic Forum itself is notorious for um, capitalism and kind of pushing yeah. forward and economic growth at all costs and all of that stuff. And, and so this is a very big change from the traditional conversations that happen at World Economic Forum. Uh, usually they're talking about how do you get your growth rates up? How do you get your population to be at uh, the right resources? How do you yeah. make sure there's jobs being created, etc.? Um, and climate change is, is almost a reductionist type view in, in, in some cases, especially when you look at China, look at the United States, etc. Um, so very interesting forum. Chad, do you think that World Economic Forum has as much relevance as it did in the past? Um, looking at kind of the way it's been run compared to, say, five or ten years ago, I get the sense that it's maybe losing some of its steam as, as the world gets ever more, like, separated and kind of nationalized. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, interesting point. Uh, quite a few things to talk to there. If we can quickly start at the uh, Greta Thunberg point being, you know, a controversial yes. figurehead, um, you know, completely agree there. So she she is seen to sort of represent the next generation. And she basically what, what, what I observed is that from the last speech that she did, um, which was obviously, I think, a lot more controversial, um, where, you know, she was kind of on the brink of tears saying, how dare you? Um, and obviously, you know, really just, tugging at people's heartstrings, whereas this was, I'd say, a lot more um, muted from a sort of emotional point of view. Obviously, the content was still, um, you know, still very much for climate change and uh, and for doing more. Um, but I certainly I certainly think it was dialed back a bit there. And I wonder if that is because of maybe some of the commentary that that came out um, previously in the previous one. I, I, I remember a lot of um, you and us, you being, you know, the, the leaders of today and us being, you know, the leaders of tomorrow. Um, which was which is very powerful, um, but like you say, quite controversial. Um, then, if we move to um, the place of the World Economic Forum, it, it really is an interesting one. Is it just a place that you know people meet up um, to go to some sort of flashy location with all of the you know top elites of the world? Is there re really meaningful discussions taking place there? Um, very interesting one. So there's a bit another topic that's on the list today. Um, where you do see, uh, I suppose, the side benefit of everyone being in the same room, um, that some of the things that are kind of on the bill, um, that I suppose get drawn out, get drawn out, um, having this platform where everyone is in the same room, you can at least kind of resolve a couple of things. Um, but I, I, I see where you're coming from on, on, on that point of view. Yeah, the only reason I bring that up is because like, I, I agree that we want these people in the same room because we want them to be able to discuss these kinds of issues. I worry, though, that at a place like that, it kind of feels like a... I would obviously I haven't been there, right? But <laughs> my my gut my gut sense is that it feels like a TED summit in a way, yeah. where everyone is trying to one up each other, and there's a lot of status games going on. There's a lot of like people just talking amazing things about their country. So I wonder how much honesty there actually is behind the doors at the, in these conversations. If you think about it from a South African perspective, right, a South African delegation goes to the World Economic Forum with one goal, and that's to raise investment back into South Africa. And so they're going to make the best case that they can to make South Africa look as good as possible. And in, in, that, in that realm, you might avoid the, the truth in some instances, or you kind of omit certain things in order to try and put the best face on South Africa possible. And so then I just imagine that happening with all 
other 120 countries at the same time, everyone trying to put on their best face. And I just wonder if behind closed doors in those conversations are, are actual honest discussions happening and what actions are coming out of that? Or is it just a big photo opportunity for all the big elites around the world? Um, I'm a little bit skeptical. I, I see where that comes from. And I mean, beyond just countries putting their best foot forward, um, you've got uh, private companies as well and, and sort, of, sort of listed companies too, um, you know, there to kind of just network and, and, and really, I, I completely get where you're coming from on that, on that front. If we touch on South Africa specifically, now there's been obviously quite a bit of change in strategy in the last couple of years, given the states that South Africa is in at the moment. Um, the sort of president wasn't even sent off this year. And uh, obviously with you know, a lot of uncertainty, a potential Moody's downgrade, um, you know, really hard to uh, kind of try and put together a, a good story for, for potential investors. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And, and, and maybe that is a bad sign for us. But at the same time, um, if, we, if we play devil's advocate for a second, we don't know what other priorities are on his plate, right? So maybe the, the opportunity cost of spending all that money and spending that whole week in Davos away from the actual problems here in South Africa, uh, he might have made a judgment call there as to what's actually more important. And that's kind of what I brought this, that's kind of what I brought up, why I brought this topic up is because I was listening to Bruce Whitfield and he was kind of my voice of what's happening in, in, in Davos for South Africa. And he kept speaking about the, this exact thing, how we have much smaller delegation than usual. And a small part of me, he was saying it as a negative, right? He was saying it as a, it's, a, it's a red flag or it's a negative sign for the country. I actually saw it the opposite way. I think it's it, as long as they're doing something productive with this time, and I don't know if they are, yeah. but let's, just, let's, let's get in the benefit of the doubt. Um, if they're doing something productive with this time and actually working on the problems that are sitting right here today and not kissing asses in Davos um, like a lot of other people are, maybe that's a good thing. Um, I think that I think Davos is is powerful if it's used in the right way, and just the sense that I get from all the stuff I read and the, the speeches that I see and, and and whatnot, I get the sense that it's become more of a status contest than an actual spot to actually just sit and discuss ideas. Yeah, get where you're coming from on that one. But uh, another interesting uh, element of Davos this year was Trump being present while his impeachment is running, uh, you know, in the States, um, coming on with a, a very confident speech about how, you know, the U.S. economy is at its strong point and uh, really turning an eye on uh, Greta Thunberg and essentially calling her a prophet of doom. Yeah, that's that's exactly the Trump the Trump kind of line of, of reasoning, right? And that's how he's going to appeal to his voter base. I I think it's interesting because um, I actually went and read a little bit of the the last decade of the U.S.'s numbers when it comes to GDP and when it comes to jobs and all that kind of stuff and stock markets and whatnot. They've had an incredible run. Like you can't yep. you can't deny the results the U.S. have had in the last ten years. And um, the economy has never been stronger. It's shown good trends in every single metric. And so um, to give Trump a little bit of credit, I don't know how much he has to do with it, but the U.S. is really, really going well. And so I, I didn't I didn't expect anything less than a strong presence from Trump there at, at the World Economic Forum. Um, and I didn't expect him to all of a sudden decide to change his mind about climate change. Um, I, think that, I think that that's a serious issue that the U.S. and China have such aversion to climate change and to even talking about it and they are the two majority em emitters by a long way and so it's crucially important if we're going to even move the needle on climate change that we have to change trump's mind and and the whole u.s's mind as well as china as well because china are building coal plants like it's candy yep Absolutely crazy stuff. Now, one of those reasons that I mentioned about sort of the side benefit of having people in the same room is the sort of ongoing debate about digital taxes. 
Now we've seen France try and implement a digital tax. And uh, of course, this is essentially trying to, to capture some of the funds that are being earned from French origin, um, where of course, most of the sort of Silicon Valley companies sit in the US. Um, and essentially there's been some sort of threats back from, from Trump uh, saying that he'll impose tariffs if they do request such a tax. We've also seen the UK doing the same thing. Uh, the UK, however, though, seems to be pretty uh, dead fast in their position and uh, not really wanting to move. Now, if we look at what a 2% tax would do on UK-generated income from some of these digital-based companies, um, it, it's predicted to be in the region of 500 million pounds a year. And if you look at France, about 450 million euros. Uh, certainly not small change. It's a very confusing topic, this for me, um, because how do you ring fence that income? How do you decide what falls within your borders when it's in the digital space or what's on the internet or et cetera? Um, it's a very confusing kind of way of thinking about tax. And obviously, everyone wants their piece of the pie. I mean, we've, we've seen huge stories about huge companies like Apple and Amazon and whatnot hiding all their taxable income on in these tax havens around the world and still operating and earning lots of money in the rest of the world and having their headquarters in one spot and then saying that that's where the income is coming from, yeah. when, when in effect, it's coming from all around the world. And so um, this conversation is going to have to happen because um, so much more of this income is, is going digital rather than analog. And uh, governments want to get their hands on it. Um, and so I don't know how you enforce this. I don't know how you decide, um, is it where the server sits? Is it where the customer sits? Is it where the transaction happens? Um, I'm, a bit, uh, I'm at a bit lost here as to how to solve this or even how to think about it. Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interesting one. I mean, for me, I would probably think, uh, you know, if you're talking about a subscription style model, like, for example, you know, Spotify or, or YouTube is even on a subscription now, uh, then it's a lot easier to, to talk about, you know, subscribers and, and where they're located. Obviously, we've got IP address tracking, um, which, you know, certainly does help pinpoint certain things. Um, but it definitely is an interesting topic, especially when you when you speak about a server. So even though I'm here, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm communicating with the end server. That's what's giving me an experience on my screen. Um, so it is an interesting topic. And uh, where it's at at the moment is that there's a sort of international law that's being developed for this purpose. Um, and yeah, this is then going to sort of set out the multilateral parameters. Um, but certainly a discussion that needs to happen. Um, but interesting for me that the UK are, are sort of steadfast in their position. Um, and uh, France have been kind of weighed off for now. They've sort of agreed to hold back until there's a bit more development. Um, but even so, the UK has received a bit of a threat uh, that there may be tariffs on the UK car industry from Trump. It seems like this is uh, his sort of go-to tactic. I mean, it definitely is. We've seen it again and again, this tit-for-tat kind of thing. We saw it with the China trade war when they were debating and like throwing trade wars across each other. Um, anytime anyone's going to do something that harms the U.S. interest, the U.S. has such huge negotiating power and is such a behemoth that it can afford to make a change on tariffs or a change on import duties or a change on a variety of things yeah. that affects the country that it's, that it's actually um, in a tussle with. And so I think is what's interesting here is that the U.S.'s military power, I would argue, is even less than its diplomatic power in, in today's world, right? We often think of the U.S. as having the strongest military in the world and therefore yes. are able to bully and bully people and kind of like run the world leadership-wise. But it's actually the diplomatic power and the ability of the marketplace to be able to dictate um, who we're going to sanction, who we're going to um, tax, who we're going to add duties to, etc. And so, like, yeah, Trump's obviously going to come back with something like that. And the U.K. has got to decide whether that cost is worth the benefit.
well, definitely an interesting dilemma, especially when they're looking for, for trade deals now, now that they have sort of effectively left at the EU. Um, next up, this is a bit of a strange one, but I saw it coming across the news feed and I thought <laughs> we couldn't not cover it. Um, there are in Miami iguanas dropping out of trees. Uh, now, this is the interesting thing for me is that they've advised, the government's advised residents not to touch them, not to take them into warm temperatures because they're still alive and they will still be completely fine when the temperatures rise again and that they actually pose a safety risk. Have you ever heard of iguanas dropping out of trees? Chad, I never thought I'd ever hear that <laughs> sentence in my life. Never mind hear about the topic. Um, no, I haven't. And I, for, I, suppose, I suppose I knew iguanas lived in trees. I kind of assumed they were on things low to the ground, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, it's a bit bizarre. Um, the fact that a temperature can force them to, to fall out of the tree. I wonder if they lose motor control, they lose yep. some sort of consciousness or something. I'm not sure. Um, what's interesting for me as well is that this is in Miami, and Miami, in my mind, is always sunny. Like, yep. for some reason in my head, I had it as the beach capital of the world, and it was always sunny. So to hear it's going through some real cold temperatures is a surprise to me, and it shows how, how little I know about U.S. geography. <laughs> um, but the iguanas, yeah, I, I suppose... Don't touch them is probably the safest bet because I know there's a bunch of people who would rather go and pick it up and take it in like as a pet or kind of try and do something for it. Yep. Um, and uh, we need some sanity there. And at least someone's come out and said, listen, guys, just leave them alone. They'll, they'll sort themselves out. Don't worry. <laughs> Nothing to be done there. <laughs> Such an interesting topic. And uh, like you said, I didn't think I would be saying it myself. Uh, moving on to <laughs> the next one. Now we look at sport and, and obviously the, the money that goes around sport. Um, in the UK, um, the, the premiership on the rugby side has something called a salary cap. So to try and sort of keep the league even Stevens, um, you know, they've enforced a salary cap across clubs. And the Saracens have been accused of being more than £2 million over this salary cap. And uh, as a result, have been relegated from the Premiership next year. The interesting thing for me is how this was done. It's not outright blatant, we've just given you an extra salary. Um, what they effectively did was interest-free loans to companies which were tied to some of the senior players. Now, these are mostly the national England rugby players. And uh, this is the interesting for me, thing for me is when they've actually looked at the terms of these agreements, um, there is a clause that says that the investor will share in profits or losses. So is this equity or is this a loan? Really interesting. Um, one of the other th interesting things is if you look at the player Itoje, obviously we saw him um, against New Zealand and obviously against SA uh, in the final. Um, what a great player. Um, but essentially they, they've paid, they've overpaid for his image rights where there was a fair value assessment of about £800,000 and they paid £1.6 Um So really interesting one here to kind of get one up on the better players. Yeah, definitely. I, th I think salary caps have been a big deal in, in a lot of sports around the world. Like I, I know them a lot from the US sports where they try and keep the NFL and the NBA and whatnot kind of kind of even. Um, but we've seen it in various sports and it's, it's a great way of trying to ensure that there aren't two or three clubs that just run away with lots of wealth and just kind of dominate the league for generations and generations and generations. It kind of keeps everyone in the game and makes it a, a little bit of a fairer fight. Because as we know, in this world of professional sports, the money talks, right? The money yep. speaks. And that's what's important in these things. Um, and so it's kind of built this whole ecosystem around the sports um, of accounting. And you say interest-free loans and image rights and all this like interesting financial discussion around how these clubs are valued, how these players are valued, how they remunerate it, and how they are transferred from club to club. 
Um, so it's really interesting from, from my perspective because it's it's kind of taking something that's intangible and trying to put a valuation on it and then debating whether that valuation is fair or not. So the image rights, for example, are obviously because of merchandise or because of advertising or those kinds of things. Or you insure a soccer player's legs so that if they get injured, you, you get your money back or whatever yeah. the story is. Um, and so a salary cap is just the kind of the tip of the iceberg when you look at the financial complexity behind these clubs. Um, and the fact that they use interest-free loans is like a, a standard loophole that all accountants will know. I mean, Ted, yeah. I know when we, we, we did tax back in the day, interest-free loans have the most kind of loopholes and little itty-bitty stuff because it's it's... It can be look. It can look like equity, and it can look like real, real valuation. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, interesting to see what's going to happen with them. Um, have they been rele- relegated already, Chad, or they're in talks at the moment? So they're still going to run out the rest of the season, the current season. But next season, they're out. Um, and I suppose that's the interesting thing here is how firm the stance was of the sort of governing body. Uh, the Saracens, not a small club, arguably one of the sort of best clubs in the in the league, um, and they've taken a really firm stance, uh, like you say. Some of these things are not as clear cut, um, but it was quite clear um, that even if it was done unintentionally, which the league is open to the possibility of, um, they're not saying that this was intentional. Um, they are still taking such a hard stance on this and obviously setting an example for all of the other clubs. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is kind of, for me, the, the, the ethical way we want to see um, environments run. It's all about setting up that uh, that environment, and when you've got an environment that is one of ethicality, um, it's it's you know it's kind of it's set. Uh, the the standard is set. So so that's an interesting uh, one right there. Now for me, the next one, um, and obviously this is something we we've been speaking extensively about, but why it's interesting for me this last week is that I hardly saw of or heard about it at all. And when I wanted to look deeper into it, there was hardly any coverage of it. So the Brexit deal passes through the Lords and gets royal assent. Um, essentially, for all intents and purposes, uh, the EU has to just do their part now. And on the 31st, uh, Friday the 31st of January at 11pm, uh, the UK has officially left and basically goes into its period of transition. Now, a lot can still happen here. We were sp- speaking about the trade deals and, and uh, obviously a lot of work still ahead here. But weren't you surprised about the lack of coverage of this? It's amazing how fickle the media can be and how quickly we forget things, right? This this was a huge story for <laughs> upwards of two and a half, three years. Yep. Um, and it gets, to, it gets to the climax. And because it's not as dramatic as what's come beforehand and because it kind of was expected, uh, it's very, very quiet. And we kind of move on with our lives. Um, so it's very bizarre. It really is bizarre. Um, I, for, I, for one, am glad that it's, well, I don't want to count my chickens <laughs> yet because we don't know. But I'm hoping that it's done. Um, and I'm I'm really curious now to see how the UK is going to deal with this and and what what kind of trade deals they're going to sign, what is going to be their strategy going forward, and, and how they're going to change all the thousands and thousands of different things they need to change in order to make the UK work as a separate entity. Um, it's going to be a, fa- a fascinating journey to watch and see because it's going to kind of set the precedent for other countries looking to leave the EU in, in the future, right? We've, had, we've heard murmurings from some other countries. Yep. Um, and so they're all going to be watching with a beady eye and look at how the UK deal with it. Um, and also interesting to see how the rest of the world is going to look to negotiate with the UK. I know that we had a UK-Africa summit at the same time as, as the World Economic Forum. Yep. And there's a lot of discussion there about deals between African countries and the UK. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see, like for example, Africa. How do they look at the UK now, now that it's been separated from the major market that is the EU? Um, and how are they going to change the way they do business? Um, 
because obviously costs are going to change. The way you do business is going to change. Some of the taxes and duties are going to change. Yep. Um, it's it's going to be a lot of admin to get right and uh, a lot of room for changing your position of power. Well, talking about counting chickens, uh, it looks like the, the mint uh, in the UK have uh, kind of done that. They're printing a 50p coin um, that has a little message which uh, essentially um, opens the way for future negotiations with other countries. Um, so that's interesting. And in terms of addressing you know, what's going to actually happen, uh, there is an address planned by Boris Johnson on Friday night. I'm not sure if that's going to be after 11 p.m. if if so, that's uh, going to be interesting to watch at that time. Um, <laughs> but uh, that'll, I suppose, set the tone for what's going to happen in this next year. Um, and, uh, you know, like you, I think uh, we're all going to take a very big interest in it. Um, let's see let's see what happens. Hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully some meaningful strides are made. And, yeah, if some extra opportunity could be given to Africa, that's not a bad thing. How do you think Boris is feeling right now, if you had to guess? <laughs> I would say he's feeling pretty good. Um, you know, he he has been able to get the majority, um, essentially win over regions that have never voted for him before. He's come in where Theresa May has not been able to get the deal that, uh, you know, is wanted. Um, you know, he's been able to get, she's been able to get sort of there-ish, but not quite there. Um, and, you know, commentators said he wouldn't be able to do it, and he did. Um, so I, I'm, I'm thinking he's, he's feeling pretty good right now. He, we've known that he's got a, a fairly good relationship with Trump as well. Um, and, and so I see him as being in a position of power at this point. I, I don't see him as being, um, you know, desperate to sort of strike deals at any cost, at, at all cost type of thing. Um, so I, I, I think he's feeling, feeling pretty good. What do you think? Yeah, I think so too. Um, just just hearing him speak and knowing his personality, I think he feels on top of the world. And I think he's very chuffed with himself right now. Um, but really now the hard work begins, right? Like you've yeah. done all of this stuff to get to this point and you've, you've proven all those promises and you've kind of won the party's affections and won the country's affections in a way. Um, and now the actual hard work begins because yeah. now you've got to actually execute it. Um, and this is when the rubber hits the road. Like politicians are really good at talking, right? They're really good at yeah. showing you plans and visions and kind of um, gesticulating about what the future could look like. When it actually comes to executing it in a very messy and nuanced world, that's when the real the real leaders stand up. And so we'll have to wait and see as, if Boris is one of those guys. Absolutely. Let's see what happens on that front. Uh, now, the last one we're going to cover this week is really just an extra added safety feature that's been incorporated into the Tinder app. So as people who are on a date, there's been a couple of cases where, you know, obviously uh, untoward things have happened. Uh, there was a case of a guy who, who took a, a girl back to his place, you know, raped her, killed her, and then went straight on to another Tinder date. Um, so obviously they've responded by adding this trigger feature we've seen features like this come out through uber the interesting thing for me here is they're kind of holding out on uh, rolling it out through the entire world so they're kind of doing it on a region by region basis which for me um i don't i don't understand why I, for me if you've got a safety feature why not just use it especially if it if it could save someone's life yeah, my guess would be that it's technical in nature, so maybe they need to test the technology and actually make sure it works. That's the one thing that comes to mind. The yeah. second thing that might come to mind is that the safety functionality is going to have to be different in every single jurisdiction because every single connection to a police or to a ambulance or to whatever, this, whatever they're going to connect that button to is different in every city and every country. Yeah. So that would be my thoughts as to why they might be rolling out in a limited fashion. I agree with you, it should be very fast and, and we should have it straight away because it's a very important thing. Um, and it, it also is a little bit of an acknowledgement from these kind of apps, especially from Uber and Tinder, um, that 
the, the kind of the social ills and the social harms that can come from this kind of marketplace and this kind of um, app. And they're looking to start taking a little bit more responsibility for it, yeah. right? Previously, they were kind of just saying, no, we just we just built the app. You guys use it. You just match with somebody else and you do your thing. Yep. Um, they've had such social pressure on them because of all these horrible things that have happened, like you said, that they have to start taking some sort of social accountability. And so the moment you start putting these features on, it shows that the company is starting to put their name behind these things and starting to like really take accountability for what happens to the users on their platform. So that can only be good. Completely agreed. Um, the interesting thing here, though, is, I mean, realistically speaking, how practical do you think this is? Uh, if you're on a date, you're not going to have your, your app open in front of you. Um, and in, in, in a case where you do have somebody who is, let's say, abusive, um, you know, how, how likely is it going to be that somebody can actually access this button in time? Yeah, I agree. It's 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 a bit wonky. It doesn't make as much sense as an Uber case. In an Uber case, it makes all yep. the sense in the world because your app is open and you just Definitely. tap it and you're good to go. As you say, on a Tinder date, it's a very different story. Um, and I wonder, I wonder if it's... I haven't done enough reading into what the button actually does, but I wonder if it helps to kind of gather data as to the kinds of people that we might have to look out for, right? Sure. So there, there might be interesting plays to do with using machine learning and artificial intelligence to try and analyze the data of when this button is used yeah. um, and what that corresponds to what kind of activity on that app. So for example, like the guy you said, if they could track the way that he uses that app and we get a sense of, cool, this is suspicious activity on this app, then maybe we can take action there. So maybe it's not a like in the moment kind of emergency thing necessarily um, yep. as its full value prop, but also just bringing data to Tinder to give a better sense of what kind of behavior should we expect on this platform. And if we see something anomalous, can we take action before something bad happens? Definitely. Definitely. Uh, I think I think they should be contacting you, Barry, for the rollout of their uh, <laughs> next uh, safety features going forward. Shall we move on to our next segment? Let's do it. Stuff I found interesting. All right, so the stuff I found interesting this week, we have two topics um, that I'm quite excited about. The first one is, is, is something I'm calling the history of writing. Um, so I've been reading this book at the moment, Chad, called Guns, Germs, and Steel by a guy called Jared Diamond. And what the book is, the book is trying to lay out reasons and kind of a history of the world and why certain regions have been overdeveloped compared to other regions. So for example, if we look at Europe and the development we've seen in Europe as compared to sub-Saharan Africa, or we look at Asia compared to Southeast Asia, or we look at North America compared to South America, why did those areas have accelerated development and accelerated civilizations where others didn't? And so it's a long book, it's a lot of anthropology, a lot of history, and there's some very interesting things in the book. Of course, it's all speculation because he's talking about things that happened 200,000 years ago and looking at things like weather and looking at things like culture and looking at various different things that are different in those geographies right. and why those regions developed differently in the way they did. So when it comes to writing, writing is one of the key ones that he pulls out as one of the key reasons that a civilization would develop faster than something else, right? The ability to write something down and to record information is a huge technology, That one of the most important technologies the human race has ever invented. Definitely. And it really did accelerate any civilization or any society that had access to that kind of technology. And often we don't think about it as a technology, right? Because we're so used to it and we're born with it and it's kind of, it's it's everywhere. We never think about the fact that what happened before writing? What happened before when you had to kind of remember everything in your head, when you had to tell stories to people and, that, and that's how you transmitted information um, before writing actually came around? 
So basically what he goes through is, is why writing came around. And Chad, you'll be, not, you'll be happy to know that um, we have accountants to thank for writing because the very first <laughs> oh. written pieces of information were ledgers of things like debts and taxes and wow. I owe this person three cows and he owes me three barrels of corn, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so this was the very first kind of attempt to have an objective truth. As opposed to me saying to you, Chad, cool, I'm going to sell you this at this price, and then you have to trust my word that I have to then deliver on it. If we can write something down and we can both agree that this says something that we that we think is of value, then therefore there's truth there. And so the very first piece of writing were exactly that, was writing down ledgers or, or n- numerical things as to debts and taxes and those sorts of things. And if we think about what writing is, writing is the ability to make some some mark or some scratch on a piece of paper or a, a stone tablet or whatever the story is, make a mark that has some sort of meaning that I can then convince you that it has the same meaning. So we need to both be able to look at the same mark and see the same thing, whether it's a word or a syllable or a letter, etc. And so if you're starting from scratch, say, say you're a caveman and you've got no writing whatsoever, to come up with a language and come up with a writing system is like yep. incredibly difficult, right? Because say you've got your 150 people in your tribe and everyone is using language, using different kinds of words that kind of speak in different ways. Um, you've got to try and contextualize all of that into a standardized thing of markings. Yep. And uh, so it's very, very difficult. And so he kind of says that in, in those kind of prehistoric societies, they would take 200 to 300 years to come up with a system that everyone would use as a standardized writing system. And so when you go through those 300 years of standardization, when you get to that point where it's finally standardized and everyone understands it, then the the leverage is exponential. Because then you can start recording things like don't eat this leaf, but eat this leaf, right? Yeah. Or where do I find this food? Or what do I do with this disease? Or you can kind of pass forward family information yep. and you can um, transmit information across large expanses. So instead of sending a guy on a horse to go and do a broken telephone message to someone 300 kilometers away, you can write detailed notes and detailed like explanations on, on a piece of paper or a piece of parchment or whatever the story is yeah. and transport that across seas and across des- deserts and all that kind of stuff. So I find it interesting that it's it's something we take for granted, but it's such a key part of human history and such a key part of technology itself as to how do we decode information. And the people who didn't have writing systems, who didn't get there or some reason had other ways of doing it that were less effective, they found themselves way behind. And so if you look at the most earliest writing systems, like the, the hieroglyphics in Egypt or in the Greek societies or in the Roman societies or in the Native American world, all of these kind of early, early writing systems were the the catalyst for increased knowledge acquisition, increased kind of communication style and and ability to communicate over large distances, um, and then also just kind of pushes that society forward. Um, And so I think we have a lot to thank for writing. And uh, so when you, basically what I'm trying to say is when you actually are sitting writing at your computer or you're writing something down, just think about how magical that is. The fact that I can make some random scratches on a piece of paper and show it to you, Chad, and you can read it and understand what I'm thinking without me having to communicate it. That is truly special and it's truly magical and it's what makes human beings the incredible species that we are. It is absolutely fascinating. I mean, like you say, we, we take it for granted. Um, if, you, if you think about it, there still are a lot of people out there in the world who are illiterate, um, you know, who, who don't know how to write. Um, and so I think it is important to, if you can, recognize that. And, and like you say, it's a blessing. Use it. A lot of the time we are 
you know, lazy to to write. Um, a lot of the time, this world, you and I speaking in a in a podcast format, um, is basically different to somebody picking up a, a newspaper and, and reading articles. If we if we look at things like YouTube and and like streaming and like audiobooks and and all of those kinds of things, we we are lazy, notoriously lazy, and I'm I'm in that bucket. Um, you know, the fact that I said I only read. a one book last year is is dismal, um, and and it's obviously because I, I haven't been looking at this as a gift. Um, and you're completely right; it is. Um, the interesting thing for me here is if you if you think about those three hundred years, or if you if you think about how long ago this progress was made, does it ever make you wonder why you know why now where we are at the moment do we think we're so special kind of thing? Um, you know what? What's what's life going to be like in three hundred years' time? In in you know four hundred years' time, um, are people going to speak of us the way that we're speaking of them, um, or you know, is it just the case that we're living in a unique time? Yeah, so that that's the dirty secret of evolution, right? That is that is the the brutal truth that people don't want to face often. Um, we often think that we are the zenith, we are at the precipice, we are the top of the food chain, and we yep. and we'll never get any better. Like this is the best it's ever going to be. <laughs> and if you look at if you look at research, every single generation thinks that their generation is the best generation of all time, right? But that can't be true because there can only be one. And and if any if everyone thinks it, then majority of people are wrong. And so I think that it's 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 humbling to to realize our spot in the evolutionary journey, and the fact that if we, we talk about climate change, right? The world is going to go on way longer than us humans, right? If the temperature goes to a crazy degree and we get we get um, killed off, the Earth's going to carry on, and evolution is going to carry on, and species are going to carry on. Um, and so we often think of ourselves as the special kind of divinely inspired thing. Um, and the truth of the matter is that we're going to evolve, we're going to change, we're going to keep advancing. Things we're not going to look like ourselves in a hundred thousand years. Yep. And so, like you say, w- what are the blind spots that we have today that people in the future are going to look back on and say, "I can't believe they did that. What idiots! Why would they do that? Or why would they think <laughs> like this?" Or th- there's so many interesting blind spots that we're not going to discover. Um, but th- but that is part of the social progress of this world and the species. Um, and so I think that the more we take the more we take for granted the kind of spot that we're in and we kind of think that we can be complacent and kind of just relax, the more trouble we're going to be in. We have to realize that this is a this is a trend and it's a graph and it's a spectrum. It's not a point in time. Yep. Um, and we're on this crazy spinning ball in the middle of infinite space. Like we need to be a little bit more humble about the human race and about ourselves, right? We, we often think that we are so special and we like the, we are the thing. We are the best <laughs> in the world. Uh, we've spoken before about being the actor in our movie, the lead actor, right? Um, it, it's, it takes a little bit of humility to understand our spot in the world. And if we think about all of the humans that have come before us and all of the humans that have come after us, hopefully it takes the pressure off us a little bit and allows us to just not take ourselves so seriously. <laughs> I mean, I do always find these discussions absolutely fascinating. Now, I am completely out of my depth in all of these types of things, but I do find them really interesting. Um, I've been tracking my way through um, the book that we actually discussed in our first episode. I still haven't finished it. Um, and also fascinating for me is is how basically, obviously, one one iteration before us, um, you know, our, our present selves, um, is, you know, how man used to sleep in a tree and until fire came out, you know, that was one of the real big changes because now that we were able to sleep on the floor because we weren't worried about predators and bugs and, and, and that kind of thing, we actually unlocked sleep. And, uh, and now we were able to actually 
remember things. Um, so, you know, before we were able to write, like you said, we had to be able to remember. Before we were able to remember, um, you know, we slept in a tree and had more sort of short-term memory loss than anything else, um, which is which is fascinating. I, I love these kinds of discussions, um, and yeah, uh, we'll have to check that book out as well. Uh, now, on the on the next one, uh, you had a bit of an interesting experience this weekend. Uh, it's been a while since I've gone to one of these, but uh, tell me about it, Barry. Were you hypnotized? <laughs> I wasn't hypnotized. I was I was too well, I was way too scared for that. Um, <laughs> I, I I can't see myself getting hypnotized. I think I'm too skeptical. So I've thought about it a lot and I was like, should I take the should I take the leap? Should I put my hand up and volunteer? <laughs> but I, I just couldn't get myself to do it. Um, but what, what was really cool is that this was my second show of going to Andre the Hilarious Hypnotist, yeah. which I think is the only hypnotist in South Africa. I mean, everyone knows him. He's been doing it for 28 years now. Yeah. And this this weekend was, was the start of his farewell tour, actually. So he's actually moving to the UK, Chad. So he's coming ah. across to your side of the world. Wow. Um, and so this is his farewell tour, his last few shows in South Africa. And so I was invited to the, the, the opening gala events because I'm part of the media these days because I own a theater club. So <laughs> that's good fun. Um, so I'm part of the press um, in inverted commas. And so I went to this this opening gala night and I remember going to one of his shows a couple years ago and sitting in it and having a really good time, found it very funny, found it very entertaining, but I was highly skeptical as to whether the people on stage were actually actors because a lot of them seemed to to go in and out of hypnosis. I was I couldn't understand why you'd be able to have this kind of control over somebody with just four or five minutes of talking to them and kind of using language and whatnot. I was very skeptical as to whether this is actually legit or not. And so I I didn't expect to have my mind changed in such a way that it has this weekend. And the way it's been changed is purely one interaction, right? So the show is exactly the same. Exactly right. the same formats, the same structure, the same gags, the same jokes, etc. Um, just different audience members. And for this this time, I kind of watched the audience members and saw, okay, cool, they seem to be getting hypnotized, they seem to have no control of what they're doing, they're very confused, they're doing all these silly things. And what really changed my mind was one of the ladies who was being hypnotized was sitting in the row behind me. And during the halftime, or during the interval, the halftime break, um, she came and sat with her family, and it was her, her husband, and her, I would say, 10-year-old son or so. Right. And her 10-year-old son was was telling her all the things she had done, saying, Mom, you were a washing machine, and you were a chicken, and you were yada, 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 yada. <laughs> and she was absolutely confused. She was convinced that the show hadn't started yet. And she kept saying, no, this, what are you talking about? No, I would never do that. No, the show hasn't started yet. I've just got here. <laughs> and, and so I was overhearing wow. this conversation behind me um, of, this, of this, this wife who was completely confused as to the fact that she had been in half a hypnotist show already and had been hypnotized. Um, and so her husband was laughing at her the whole time. Her son was laughing. I was laughing. <laughs> and she was completely confused. Oh, wow. at, one stage, at one stage, her husband said to her, what time do you think it is? And she's like, well, the show starts at eight, so it must be just about eight. And he told her, okay, look at your watch. And she looked at her watch and saw it was nine o'clock and was completely freaked out because she had obviously lost that entire piece of memory. Um, wow. And even then she didn't believe us because even then she was a bit confused as to why she was there and what was going on. So after all of that, I'm convinced that she was not an actor based on what I heard behind me and based on her family's interactions. And that gives me confidence that maybe those people were hypnotized on stage. Um, and so that kind of epiphany changed the whole way I look at hypnosis and really made me wonder about its power and like how magical it actually is, right? Uh, I think one of the key things that, that was underlying my skepticism at first and that kind of got 
confirmed in this show was that you can't hypnotize everybody. Yeah. Right, it has to have some. There has to be some sort of cooperation from the person being hypnotized in order to make it work. So, for example, he called up about there were about sixteen volunteers or so went up, and only about eight or so were actually able to be hypnotized, and he had to send the rest off stage. Right. Because if you don't cooperate, if you don't give up that control in some subconscious way, no one can actually make you do something against your will. Right? It 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 doesn't work like that. It's it's almost a, a play. Like you you cooperate with that person and you give up control. And then you go into this weird trance-like state that you then are completely oblivious to what you're doing on stage. So it's a very bizarre fact of human psychology and a very like magical thing to realize how much power our brain actually has. That we can go off into a crazy another world, even though we're in front of hundreds of people who are laughing and making noise and whatnot, we are in this alternate reality simply by the fact that we listen to someone's voice and we take some sort of behavioral cues from the people around us. That kind of power of the mind is really special. And I'm actually writing a piece right now. I'm working on a piece talking about it. And how, how can we use that power to almost hypnotize ourselves to be happier and to be more productive and to be more content with life? Because if, if a hypnotist can do it just to us and make us dance like a chicken and dance like a washing <laughs> machine and all this kind of stuff, can we use that power for more productive means, right? Can we, can we hypnotize ourselves into an attitude of positivity, of optimism, of kind of contentment and kind of um, like a more even mental keel? And that to me is interesting. So I don't know what you think, Chad. What do you, what do you think about hypnosis? And does that story resonate at all? Yeah, so like you said, um, being South African, I know of Andre the hypnotist very well, also been to probably four shows of his, um, you know, throughout my life. Oh, wow. Um, a lot as a kid. And yeah, I, I always found it really interesting. Um, and, you know, for me, it was always something that I I believed it, I believed in from the beginning. Um, so I'm generally skeptical. Um, but, you know, like you said, kind of just the the authenticity of it. Um, you, you, you can see straight away the way the person walks and they're, they're a different person. They're a completely different person. Um, it's almost like you've, you've planted somebody else in that body. Um, and it's, it's a weird thought, um, but completely interesting. Where, where I'm interested on this is how obviously the show is, is for entertainment value and for entertainment purposes. And like you mentioned, the lady couldn't remember anything that she had done. Um, but the interesting piece for me is is the therapy part of this. So we've heard of people, um, you know, doing sort of hypnosis to try and stop smoking, hypnosis to try and lose weight. And uh, like you said, ver various people have had different results. Uh, but interesting for me how you've got different genres of the same thing. Is it a technique that sort of differs which one has a lasting impact, which one sort of plants itself in the subconscious, um, and which one is sort of just there, wipes the memory clean, um, you know, to make everyone laugh? Um, and I mean, like you said, maybe we should be looking at this a little bit deeper um, in terms of the, the sort of value that we could get from it. Ima imagine what it could do for, for mental health if we could if we could shift people's perspectives um, on a sort of sustainable basis um, and, uh, and, you know, not leave any lasting damage. Um, really interesting. Um, but, I mean, then, then again, then there's the, the other question of who is qualified to do, to do this? Because like we spoke in the previous few weeks, um, you know, like psychology, you've got, it, it's a profound sort of play of, of power and uh, who do you trust with that sort of power, um, which, is, which is also really interesting. 
Yeah, definitely. And and all of these thoughts are, are running through my head as as we thought as we think about this because what what kind of st- stuck with me was the fact that I'm very skeptical and I was skeptical before the show, yeah. right? And so I said to you like I don't think I could be hypnotized. But for example, if you could convince me that there was a benefit to it. So say say I was a smoker and I desperately needed to get rid of smoking and you could you could convince me that it actually does work and you can't stop smoking for it. Would I be able to kind of put the placebo effect on myself? And override my own skepticism in order to make that work. Yeah. And that's like a curiosity that I had after that show is to say for like mental health is a great example. If I was if someone convinced me that my mental health would improve if I could self-hypnotize myself or be hypnotized by somebody else, yep. would I be able to override the rational brain, intellectual brain that kind of wants to say this is bullshit? Would I be able to override it because actually for benefits? And I, I don't know the answer to that. That's an interesting point to psychology. Yep. And like like you say, in order to get there, you got to be able to trust the person that you're working with, and that's a huge, huge deal, yeah. right? To be able to trust the therapist, trust the hypnotist. Um, like obviously, Andre, there's no real there's no real stakes involved because sure. it's all for fun. But when you look at smoking, you look at weight loss, you look at drug addiction, all these things, um, it the stakes get much higher. And like you like you say, like it's difficult to understand where does the line actually lie. Um, and how much of it is coming from the person themselves, and how much of it is thoughts being imposed by somebody else? Um, I think it's inter- I think it's fascinating, yep. and I'm actually, I'm, yeah, as I say, I'm writing up a big post on it at the moment um, because I've been so fascinated by this whole experience and what it could mean for the future of mental health or the future of just my own self help, right? Yep. Absolutely. I mean, if you if you want to take a look at that post, please do sign up to Barry's blog um, at barrymaurice.com. Um, I've always kind of come into contact with some of our listeners and, and everyone's obviously interested in what Barry's up to. So if you are, sign up to his blog um, and you, you can check it out, check out what he's thinking and uh, you know what he's up to. Um, shall we move on to Look Ahead? Let's do it. Looking Ahead. So a few weeks ago, I know we, we're already on week 12, um, but uh, quite a while back we were chatting about China and uh, them implementing facial recognition on devices. Now Barry's come across an article um, which involves the EU this time. Barry, talk us through it. Yeah, definitely. So so China's facial recognition has been a huge story for the last two or three years, and it kind of is emblematic of the kind of the way that China looks at their citizens. And so we've seen cameras going up absolutely everywhere in China and using a lot of AI and machine learning to try and track potential criminals, track people who are missing, to kind of watch their citizens in a very, very creepy way. Um, and I actually had a friend who was over from China um, last week, I went to a braai with, and he was saying that he came home the one day to his apartment complex to find a government camera just plopped in the middle of the, go- the apartment clump- complex without any notice, without telling them at all, he just found no the camera there. And so you can only assume what that camera is recording and what it's what information it's sending back to the government. Wow. So obviously China is on the one extreme when it comes to facial recognition and how they're using that for surveillance. Um, and there's been a huge debate then about what does that mean for the rest of the world. And so the EU has been traditionally conservative in this kind of in this world and kind of we look at GDPR, look at the way they've looked at ethics in the past. They've been yep. very very strong on regulating it. And so we saw a story now of they are l- considering banning the use of facial recognition in public places for the next five years, which is a very very strong step to make yep. and a very strong step to take if they do, um, because what this would do it would stop the innovation in that space in the EU. Um, in order to give them time, give the regulators time to try and figure out what is the right way to go and, and how, how are we going to chart the path for the EU going forward. Um, it's a very, very big kind of 
mark in the sand to say we're not going to be China, we're going to be the opposite of China, and we're going to think more carefully about what are the implications of this surveillance and this kind of technology. Um, and so it's a very interesting dilemma here as to, it seems like a victory for the citizens, right? So if you're a citizen, you're very happy to hear this because you want your privacy and you want to protect that and whatnot. But some people think that it's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Some people think that this is going to push Europe even further behind the technolo technological edge that the US and the China ha and the China have and put them even further behind when you look at the new technology. Because with all of these bad things come good, right? We've, we've spoken before about the, the technology is often neutral. And with mass surveillance, there's a lot of privacy concerns, but there's also good that comes out of it when yeah. it comes to improved public safety or when it comes to improved um, finding of missing persons or maybe improved government services, etc. And so there's always a trade-off in these debates. And so whether a five-year ban on this technology is right or not, I don't know. But it's interesting that the EU is really putting their, their flag in the sand and saying we're not going to be China. It's interesting. Um, I mean, for me, the interesting question here is what do they mean by they banning the use? Um, does this mean that, um, you know, no convictions can be made on the back of it? Does this mean that cameras cannot have facial recognition technology at all? I've even seen in pharmacies where you walk through the door and a, a red box goes around your face and you can quite clearly see on the screen that it's, you know, it's picking it up. So for me, what do they mean by it can't be used? And is this sort of on a commercial level or is this on a government level as well? Um, I would be really intrigued if, you know, MI6, for example, are not able to use facial recognition um, because, you know, like you say, I mean, that instantly puts puts us behind uh, other nations um, and certainly there's uh, I'm sure agreements of, of intelligence sharing with other nations um, so this is interesting I, th I think it's I think it's uh, going to be important to sort of define what they mean by use um, off the bat what, what do you think they they kind of alluding to here yeah, so it's it's difficult to say, and, and the devil's in the details with these things, right? So we read a story like this, we're not sure the exact details of how it's going to be enforced. Um, and like you say, enforcing it's going to be very challenging. I mean, it's, it's already inbuilt into so much of our society, and, and it's way more prevalent than we actually realize. Yeah. I think that you, you mentioned the red box around the face, and that's very visible. I know there's a lot of facial recognition going on that people don't even know about because it's kind of hidden from view. Yep. And so how do you enforce it? I'm not sure. When it comes to use, I'm assuming commercial use. I, I don't know if the government would put, would, would put the same regulations on themselves. Um, I, I don't know how that works, especially. Um, and like you say, what's going to happen if they ban it completely and even the government doesn't use it and then there's a terrorist attack yep. and something happens and then all of a sudden the media jumps on the bandwagon and says, well, we didn't have the power to actually stop us, stop it or kind of save ourselves. So it's it's a very difficult discussion, and and ethically it's going to be kind of a, a, a high watermark as to how the world's going to deal with this new technology, and how we're going to look at facial recognition in the future. We've spoken a lot about privacy in, in our in our last episodes, yeah. and privacy is a discussion as to whether it exists anymore. We really have to be able to have this debate as to whether privacy is actually a concept that's worth discussing in 2019, yeah. 2020, and 2021, yeah. because maybe it's gone. Maybe the world has moved past that and we need to rethink the way we think about privacy because every single discussion that comes around this has this trade-off of improved safety versus nefarious use cases. And I don't know how we solve that. I don't know how we, we come up with some sort of framework that tries to disincentivize bad use cases but still access the power that this technology provides. Um, and as an AI optimist myself, I'm often on the side of the technology, um, but I, but I'm, I'm firmly aware that this gives people the heebie-jeebies, right? People want that privacy, and they and they they're scared of this kind of stuff happening. 
Definitely. Fascinating discussion, um, you know, has so many ramifications and everyone sits on different parts of the spectrum. Like you say, I think in the in the next three, four, five years, even by the time this uh, ban sort of comes to an end, which is also an interesting thing is that they've set a time limit on it. Um, we, we, we're no doubt going to be in a completely different space. Um, so, yeah, really interesting to keep an eye on how that develops. Let's move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. In Develop and Grow this week, we have one topic, um, and it's something that I went to earlier this week. I went to my very first Toastmasters event. Um, and for those of people who don't know, Toastmasters is a worldwide organization that helps people come together to practice public speaking and practice communicating to each other. And so the basic idea is that you get together in a little club in wherever you live, somewhere close to where you live, and with, say, 12 to 15 people. And every week you meet on a regular basis and you give practice speeches. So there's this whole framework and there's lots of lots of admin that comes <laughs> with it. And there's this whole like online program you go through. Okay. And you start with like a small icebreaker and you move up and up and up, hopefully getting better and more confident with your speaking. Um, and basically what it tries to do is tries to help people get over stage fright, get over the fright, of the, the fear of public speaking. And then once you've got over that fear is to get better and better at communicating. So Chad, we've spoken about this in the past is one of the main reasons we do this podcast Definitely. is for the, exactly this reason is to practice articulating, practice speaking and try and be clearer, try and get rid of the ums and the so's and, and all of that good stuff. Um, because, oh, there we go, <laughs> I just did it right there. And, <laughs> and so communicating is such an important piece of life and of business and of trying to make yourself a better human being. The better you can get at it, it's the better you're going to survive and the better you're going to succeed in this world. And so Toastmasters for me is another example of me trying to improve myself there. I found it an interesting meeting. I, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to go in and actually do the whole process because if you commit to it, it actually is quite a lot of work and quite a lot of like commitments to do. Um, and so I've got to figure out what are my priorities for the next year and whether this is something I should consider. But I was very happy that I went. And I think for anyone who is struggling with public speaking or wants to get more articulate, it's the perfect safe space to go and practice and practice and practice and practice to get better and better at what is such an important skill. Definitely agree. I mean, basically a year and a half ago, I was kind of at the same stage as you um, where I was at a company who offered Toastmasters as a sort of lunchtime activity. Um, and uh, I just didn't go to that first meeting. Um, it's always, like you say, that fear of, of kind of getting up there um, in front of a whole bunch of people. And I was at investment bank as well, where I kind of felt like I just sort of snuck in, wasn't, doesn't deserve to be there. Um, so yeah, always, always an interesting um, one, a lot of sort of um, personal boundaries to, to get across. Um, so, you know, I think you've, you've kind of got past uh, one of the steps that a lot of people don't even get past, which is, which is going to that first meeting. In terms of calling it an interesting first meeting, um, sort of stripping away all the work that's ahead. Um, obviously, we, we know you've got loads of things to get through this year. Um, what, what else did you kind of experience? Um, were the members welcoming? Were they kind of trying to get you in? Was it uh, sort of, was it constructive? What was your sort of take on, on the experience? Yeah, so the reason I use the word interesting is because it's a little bit of a cult. Yeah. If we're honest with ourselves, it's a bit of a cult. Um, and so the format of the meetings is very, very structured. Like there's a, there's a real format as to how they work. There's various roles that people get given for that meeting and um, with all these fancy names. And it's, it's quite formal in that way because what it's, it's been designed to do is trying to give as many people as possible an opportunity to speak at that meeting. So it's not just the people giving speeches who are practicing their communicating. It's people who are evaluating those speeches. And there's a, a Toastmaster who's running the, even, or running the evening as kind of an MC of sorts. And, and so this 
all of this um, formality and structure makes it a little bit culty. And so when you go there, it is a bit overwhelming right. and they are very, very welcoming and that's because they're trying to recruit you yep. into their cult. Yep. <laughs> and so you've got to be a little bit careful as to how you communicate with these people and that's the one reason I'm a little bit hesitant about yep. it. For me, I'm I'm in I'm in a lucky position where I'm not trying to get over a fear of public speaking. I'm trying to get to the next level of my speaking. Yep. So for me, I'm trying to figure out if it's relevant for my kind of standard of speaking at the moment. Um, and so when I th there's various personalities in the group that I went to and various levels of competence. And so you definitely be able to pick up some stuff. But whether everyone is there for the same reason or the same agenda is 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 unsure. I'm, I'm I'm unsure of. And so that's why I say it's interesting. It's it's a very it's quite a bizarre thing, right? When you go there, it's unlike anything else. And so I'm not sure if I'm in it for the long haul. In that in that case, I'd love to hear from any listeners of ours who've been through Toastmasters before. Yeah. Please let us know as your thoughts and your opinions and, and how it went for you and your experiences. Definitely. Because I'm trying to just make an educated decision as to whether I'm going to do it or not. So if you have done it before, please reach out to us and let me know what your thoughts. Definitely uh, interesting how you kind of thought about it all. Um, and it, it, it is it is interesting kind of coming into those cases where, you know, you, you hear about all these cults and, uh, and what they aim to do and... Uh, and it's 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 obviously got a sort of negative stigma, um, but you know maybe it is just a club of of people who obviously you know need to kind of cover their cover their fees, um, and uh, ultimately the you know corporate's purpose is actually a genuine uh, case of wanting to to make people better speakers. I suppose it's always interesting uh, to see you know, wh where you think it actually sits. Um, so yeah, thanks for letting us know about that one. Uh, let's move on to a question from our listeners. What's on your mind? Right, so we've got a question from a listener. Uh, let's play this one. Uh, this is a question from Dara. Hi, Barry and Chad. My question revolves around corporate or government sponsorship of projects where the body sponsoring is deemed or seen as unethical. There is an article in today's Guardian which questions whether architects should work for oppressive regimes. But there's also been debate in recent years around corporate sponsorship of museums, such as the issues around BP sponsoring the Tate in England. So does the end product justify the manner in which it was arrived at? If these governments and business can be seen to act indecorously and still attract buy-in from these prominent figures and institutions, it's surely only a poor message to send in a world where, amongst other things, inequality, environmental degradation are major issues. What are your views? Quite a loaded question there. Thank you very much, Dara. And I think quite an important question. Um, ethics is always the theme of the day when it comes to you and I getting together to discuss something. Um, so I think this kind of speaks really well to one of the discussions we had um, a few weeks ago um, in terms of sort of intention and results. Um, and, you know, where I sort of sit on this um, is, is is kind of kind of a mixed one as well. So if, if I kind of explain my sort of thought patterns on this um there's i think a lot of hypocrisy in the world um if we look at for example th things like money laundering we discourage foreigners bringing loads amounts of cash in um for the fact that it's it could potentially be dirty money um and there would be a benefit um you know the com the country that receives it would obviously receive investment would uh, potentially boost gdp because you know the, the people who who own that place will will benefit from it now have more you know purchasing parity um so for me, we've already answered it uh, in, in terms of that front. If we also look at something um, like the assassination we saw um, a couple of weeks back, I don't know about you, Barry, but I don't see anyone 
on trial for that murder. Um, murder is not a good thing, but somehow, um, you know, we're okay with it when it is somebody who, um, who would have caused more harm. Um, and so for me, this is an interesting discussion. I think where I stand on it is uh, if the company's kind of admitted and, and sort of taken ownership of, of what it is that they've done wrong in the past and like in an authentic way are now kind of trying to make right with the community. Um, for me, like we spoke about the Kanye West debate, fair play. Uh, fair play to them, you know, let them kind of have their chance at redemption. Um, but if it's if it's a company that is kind of continually um, carrying on with, with what it is that they're doing wrong in the world, um, and they're sort of using this as a, as a basis to kind of, uh, you know, try and pull wool over the eyes of, of some people in society, then for me, I think it's a different story altogether. This is kind of in the same bucket, I would say, that a lot of donations are kind of made for the for the tax breaks that they bring. Um, so I, w- I would kind of put that in the same bucket. Um, but I mean, on the other hand, do you want to strip potential good benefits from society like a museum? Um, so, you know, d- regardless of whether where it comes from, is that something that you want to kind of rob the world of? I mean, a, a question, if if you don't accept that donation from this company, are they going to actually change whatever it is that they're doing wrong? I don't think so. In which case, I would rather the world be better off with whatever it is that they're doing to sort of kind of patch up that gap. It's an interesting one. Um, Barry, where do you sit on it? There's so much here. There's there's so much here, and I'm trying to get it straight to my mind. <laughs> kind of the first dichotomy that I, that I that I'm thinking about, and that kind of makes sense in this topic, is there's a certain level of professionalism that needs to be in in the world to make it work, right? So if you're running a business, you're running a museum, you're running whatever you're running, money is your lifeblood, and if you're relying on donations, you're relying on sponsorship, you're relying on on that kind of that kind of income to make your thing work, there comes a level of practicality where you need to yeah. accept whatever you get. Right. If you're in a position where you don't have choices, you don't have three or four different sponsors who are willing to put that money in, like you say, in order to get that good into the world and to make that museum run or let that whatever run, um, that money is important. So there's that there's that level of that professionalism that needs to happen and that pragmatism as to that's how the world works, unfortunately. The other side of the dichotomy is this this whole kind of cancel culture that we've seen in the last couple, I would say months more specifically, where someone will do something wrong, for example, yep. like a tweet or a, a statement or something, and the mo- the social media mob, mostly mostly from the liberal left, will jump on top of them and will try and destroy their career, and basically like will try and make sure that they never get associated with anything else ever in their yep. life. And so we we spoke about Kanye West, we we've spoken about this a little bit in the past, as to the branding is very important of your museum. So obviously, you want you want the sponsor to be as yeah. as uh, as good in the public eye as possible because that branding is important. But where does it go too far? Where we aren't willing to kind of separate the church and state in a way, and where just putting something's name on a museum does that all of a sudden cast all of those connotations along with that with that that party, that company, that individual, etc. So it's a difficult dichotomy to to do, and it kind of comes down on a case-by-case basis as to looking at what are the opportunities you have for those sponsorships and what kind of branding do the people coming to you have, and you have to make a decision there based on this. And we've seen it happen in the past. We've seen like YouTubers and celebrities and what lose a lot of endorsements and whatnot. But on the other side of the coin, we've seen the Saudi Arabia with all the human rights abuses they've seen, they've had in their country, come and invest 
billions and billions of dollars into various startups around the world that they'll take the money, no, no questions asked. And so, mm. yeah, I don't know where I stand on this. I think it has to be a case-by-case -case basis. But I, I, I think I'm leaning towards, leaning against the cancel culture, leaning against this idea that um, because of your personal brand or because of something you said in the past, you therefore have this like scarlet letter on your chest and therefore you can never be associated with anything again. I think we have to understand that people have nuanced views about these things and not everyone agrees with you. So who are we to judge? Who are we to decide that this corporation has done something that's terrible and therefore deserves to be in purgatory for the rest of its life, right? That's just an opinion of mine. And there could be a neighbor who thinks the complete opposite side of the issue um, that would like think a different way. And so why do I have the right to then destroy that person's career? I, I say let the market do the, what the market does yeah. best. And so if, the, if they can get the sponsorship through, then they're good for them. And you let people criticize, that's for sure. So people can criticize, they can definitely throw stones, and they can protest and do all that stuff that comes with freedom of speech. But when it comes to the actual business of how these things work, it's really hard to, just to draw the line. Like, so it's easy, it, it's, it's easy in some cases where there's been a rape or there's been something that's really horrible or a murder or something that's, that's very, very clear. And th in those cases, it's pretty easy to say, cool, we don't want to do business with that person. Yep. But with big corporations, big, big com companies, countries, how do you make that call? Like, where do you draw that line? I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult and I feel like I'm going in circles. I don't know if that makes any sense, Chad. That makes complete sense. Um, I mean, you kind of mentioned case by case. So let's, let's sort of push it further because the listener gave us an example of BP and uh, a sponsor, sponsorship on the Tate uh, Museum in, in London. Um, obviously, we know sort of nine years ago, um, the, the sort of devastating oil leak that is still you know, still has repercussions. And, and in fact, we can't actually quantify the damage um, in terms of how, you know, how the effects of this on the earth are, are going to be in, in the Gulf. Um, so, you know, what do you think? Do you think on that case, do you think in terms of BP donating a, a sum of money to a museum in London um, is okay? Should London, um, a city that, you know, for me has probably many other options, um, could have potentially looked around a little bit more. What do you think? Or, or, or is cash cash at the end of the day? Yeah, it's from, in my mind, it depends on what the objective of the museum is, right? Is the, is the objective to try and stall BP? And so say, say you're on the side of saying you don't want to take their money. What do you think that's going to do to them? They're yeah. just going to take their money and go and put it somewhere else, Definitely. right? It's not going to change anything in their business. Yeah. So I think we conflate issues here. We conflate the issue of the BP oil spill and kind of the way they, they do business and some of their, their processes and their impact on climate change is a serious issue. Yeah. And we should be discussing it and we should be making sure that they are in line. I see it as a completely separate issue to their sponsorship of something like a museum. Right. Right? I think that those those two, in my mind, are separate. And the moment we think, it, it's kind of come back to that social media activism. The moment we think that if we cancel the sponsorship and we can then go on Twitter and celebrate, yes, we stopped the big <laughs> giant corporate giant from sponsoring the yeah. Tate Museum, yeah. we are kidding ourselves that we've actually done something. Yep. We are kidding ourselves that we've actually made an impact. What makes an impact is not fighting sponsorship of a museum, which which we, it shouldn't even be a story, yep. right? What we should be fighting the actual BP itself and the processes and kind of trying to improve that, because if you if you play devil's advocate for a second, BP is an employer of hundreds of thousands of people around Definitely. the world. They are a very very key part of a lot of economies, and so it isn't just bad. It, it it's not as easy as like a supervillain. Yep. 
uh, it's the, one of those movies where there's the hero and the villain and you'll do everything to kill the villain. It's not mm-hmm. as simple as that. Mm-hmm. There's much more nuance here. And so in this particular case, Chad, I, I, I come down on the, on, the, on the space that I think we're conflating issues. I think the sponsorship, obviously they're, they're, they're right to do whatever they want and if they want to say no, they can. But I don't think it's a, an effective strategy for changing the way the BP does business by, by shaming them in this way. Yep. I just don't think it's effective. Yeah, such an interesting discussion. Such interesting points there, Barry. I think you've you've hit the nail on the head on on all of the considerations that we could possibly go into, um, and you know, really an interesting one. So, where do you as a listener sit on this? Uh, please do drop us a line uh, on any of our sort of social media platforms. If you're on YouTube, just drop a comment below and uh, let us know what you think. Um, ultimately, these things aren't clear cut. Um, so yeah, let's just let's just talk about it. Um, and uh, it would be interesting to see where you sit on that. That brings us to a close uh, to another busy episode yet again. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll certainly be back next week. Uh, and I'm sure by the time we get there, another a whole bunch of things to, to cover. Wasn't this a bit of a whirlwind, Barry? It definitely was. It definitely was. And uh, coming from the day that I've had, I feel like I've been in a washing machine. But it's all good. It's all good. And uh, these discussions always fill me with energy and fill me with, with, with joy. So I'm very glad to be doing this. Absolutely. Well, thanks for tuning in, as always, to Across the Pond. Um, if you haven't subscribed yet to uh, any of our channels, please do. And if you haven't checked out our Clips channel yet, um, please do. Because obviously, sometimes these one hour to one hour, 20 minute episodes are a little bit daunting for some people. So if you kind of want to just tune in and out to certain topics, uh, check out Across the Pond Clips on YouTube. Um, We're also going to be launching a Facebook page, um, which is also called Across the Pond Podcast. And we're going to be uploading these clips on that platform too. Um, So yeah, certainly if you want to kind of just listen to certain topics, we'll be doing all the splitting out on our side. And uh, yeah, you can tune in for as long as you have. As always, thanks for tuning in. And this was episode 12 of Across the Pond. Across the pond with Barry and Chad.